Hi, and welcome to Archaeopod. My name is Amber, and I'm a student of archaeology and anthropology here in Melbourne, Australia. These podcasts are based on my undergraduate research papers and are all part of my process of inquiry and learning. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which these podcasts were created, the Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past and present. This is Archaeopod, Stories of the Human Past. In this podcast, we're travelling to ancient Greece. Wait, scrap that. We can't go to Greece. There's a global pandemic. You stay at home and I'll tell you a story. First, let me introduce the characters. Centre stage is the Parthenon, the remains of which are found in the region of Attica in Greece, at the Acropolis of Athens. Decaying under the weight of time, the construction of it commenced around 447 BC and was completed by around 432 BC. Created with pentelic marble, it's a temple that was erected in dedication to Athena, the city's patron deity. Other characters in this episode are the Ottoman Empire, Lord Elgin, Melina Mercuri, the British Museum, World War II, and a handful of scholarly opinions. Perhaps more refined than any other building that came before it, Classical archaeologist Judith Barringer describes the Parthenon design as a mathematical, intellectual and technical feat of the highest order. The areas of the Parthenon that we're concerned with in this story are the areas of the frieze and the metopes. These are the uppermost areas of the structure. In original form, the metopes numbered 92, which was the largest number to ever appear in a Greek temple. Along with the overall building plan and architectural sophistication, it's these decorated metopes, frieze areas and pediments that distinguish the Parthenon from other buildings. As a collective, the images are representative of Greeks in victory over barbarians. And it's in this way that the Parthenon sculptures visually narrate both history and mythology. Judith Barringer suggests that the metopes demonstrate civic ideology. The sentiments of civic ideology continue to reverberate throughout much of the Western world today. In 1986, Melina Mercuri, then the Minister of Culture and Sciences in Greece, described the Parthenon marbles as our sacrifices, the noblest symbol of excellence and a tribute to the democratic philosophy. Symbolising the quest for balance and harmony, a graphic image of the Parthenon is currently employed as the official logo of UNESCO. In a world saturated with visual icons that are embedded with symbolism, this is testament to the fact that ideology and even modern mythology are powerfully expressed through visual mediums. Look, really what I'm trying to say here is that the symbolism and ideology expressed in objects such as the Parthenon sculptures still have meaning and relevance today, possibly no less than when they came into creation some 2,500 years ago, and possibly no less than in 1801, when Lord Elgin decided to remove and relocate some of them to Great Britain. 
In total, 15 out of 92 metopes, 75 metres out of the original 160 metres of frieze, 17 figures from the pediments and assorted pieces of architecture were removed from the Parthenon. So, who is this Elgin character? Well, Lord Elgin served as Ambassador Extraordinary and Minister Plenipotentiary, try saying that ten times fast, to the Ottoman court at Constantinople from 1799 until 1803. Now I had to look that word up. Plenipotentiary, as an adjective, is defined as invested with or conferring full powers, and as a noun, a diplomatic agent, such as an ambassador, fully authorised to represent his or her government. Search an image of Lord Elgin and you'll find a sort of stocky man, white hair, bald at the centre, and pretty serious looking. You know the type. His original intention was to benefit the progress of fine arts in Great Britain by obtaining drawings and casts of the Parthenon sculptures. Elgin was granted an initial firman, that's written permission, from the Ottoman court to do so. Subsequently, a second firman was granted, allegedly allowing Elgin to remove actual pieces. The original firman has never been seen by modern scholars. The only evidence of this promissory note is an official translation in the Italian language. So, the marbles were shipped to Scotland, then consigned to England, and subsequently exhibited in Lord Elgin's private property. And in 1816, the collection was purchased by the British Museum for the sum of £35,000. Quite the investment. The argument for Lord Elgin having lawfully obtained the Parthenon sculptures is based upon the existence of that firman. But, as argued by Jeanette Greenfield, under British law itself and indicated in the 1893 Sale of Goods Act, the purchase of the sculptures by the British Museum is arguably suspect. The existence of the original firman is not confirmed and Lord Elgin did not purchase the marbles. Dr Ian Jenkins, senior curator at the British Museum, states that if Lord Elgin did not act as he did, the sculptures would not survive as they do. And that's a noble ideal, but we can't really know if they would have survived or not. Furthermore, such arguments are unsatisfactory because they divert attention away from restitution and expose an antiquated, colonialist position. On their website, the British Museum states, the Parthenon sculptures are a vital element in this interconnected world collection. They're a part of the world's shared heritage and transcend political boundaries. While there's much appeal in that lofty notion, it does fail to acknowledge the original and intended function of the pieces and the Parthenon as a whole entity. I mean, you wouldn't split up the members of Da Vinci's Last Supper, would you? Would you? Well, maybe some folks would, but I wouldn't. Head of the J. Paul Getty Museum, James Cuno, dismisses Greece's claims for restitution as nationalist and makes an argument for encyclopedic museums that inspire cosmopolitan ideals in order to enlarge the viewer's world. Well, okay, but here's an idea. The acts of establishing the British Museum and the subsequent purpose-built Duvine Gallery to house the sculptures can be seen as acts of nationalism in themselves. Museums, as articulated by Peter Aronson, are recognised as representing national values. And, speaking of values, by its own charge, the British Museum is founded upon Enlightenment ideals and values.
With the world reeling from physical, psychological and cultural damage after the Second World War, the United Nations and UNESCO were established in 1945, and it was not until the formation of these bodies whereby a member state could request a case be opened in regards to any contentious issues between states. Currently there are five UNESCO conventions that apply to the protection of cultural heritage and one convention listed by the International Institute for the Unification of Private Law. The laws pertaining to cultural heritage sit under the wider umbrella of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. Because of this fact, some cases of restitution are thwarted immediately, and this is due to Article 28 of the Convention, the non-retroactivity of treaties. Succinctly, if the law or treaty was not in existence and binding at the time of the alleged offence, law cannot be applied retrospectively to it. Aww. However, as Nick Garlis highlights, this is not set in stone, and the International Law Commission have stated that, and I quote, there is nothing to prevent the parties from giving a treaty, or some of its provisions, retroactive effects if they think fit, unquote. It therefore takes the political willpower of two nations to arrive at some sort of agreement. Unfortunately though, as Jeanette Greenfield says, judgments of the International Court are binding. However, there is an absence of mandatory power attaching to them, and an opinion of the International Court commands only some moral force. To add to this, if Greece desired to bring an action before an English court, the private international laws of Britain would not administer the laws of a foreign public state. And where UNESCO members are not able to employ international law for the call of restitution, they can seek the governance from the Intergovernmental Committee for Promoting the Return of Cultural Property, which is administered by UNESCO. In 2015, the British Government and the British Museum turned down an offer of arbitration from this Intergovernmental Committee, and they continue to refute all calls for restitution of the Parthenon sculptures. The removal of the Parthenon sculptures would be entirely illegal under international law and the conventions that protect cultural heritage today. This in itself illustrates the changes in attitudes regarding ownership and management of cultural artefacts over the past eight decades. Unfortunately though, it offers little in legal avenues for remedying actions that were taken so long ago. So it appears that these situations require political willpower and willingness of reflexivity for nation-states to independently negotiate the terms of repatriation. Compromise such as this remains to be seen between the United Kingdom and Greece. Be that as it may, with the world's persistent appetite for national and international cultural heritage, museums and other repositories might do well to incorporate departments of ethics at their foundations. In my mind, it's all pretty complicated, and of course there are many aspects of this debate that I haven't covered here. There are many reasons why institutions are reluctant to honour calls of restitution. But to me, part of the reason sits within a lack of regard for critical and ethical evaluation of both the provenience and the original intended use or place of cultural objects. If the British Museum represents a collection based on Enlightenment values, it does so only to a level that aestheticises the classical world. The cultural appropriation of the Greek aesthetic as a symbol of universal value, but not the appropriation of critical thinking and critical inquiry into ethics and morality, 
Well, surely that would be a disappointment to Plato and other greats who once walked the halls of the Parthenon. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Archaeopod, stories of the human past. Mm-hmm.